0: Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Jonathan Ganap is an assistant professor in Stanford's History Department. He is a scholar of revolutionary and early Republican America, specializing in the periods constitutionalism, political culture, legal history, and intellectual history. He is also interested in the method and practice of the history of ideas. His first book, The Second Creation, Fixing the American Constitution in the Founding Era, Harvard University Press, rethinks the conventional story of American constitutional creation by exploring how and why founding-era Americans' understanding of their Constitution transformed in the earliest years of the document's existence. It investigates how early political debates over the Constitution's meaning helped alter how Americans imagined the Constitution and its possibilities, showing how these changes created a distinct kind of constitutional culture, the consequences of which endure to this day. It won the 2017 Thomas J. Wilson Memorial Prize from Harvard University Press and the 2019 Best Book in American Political Thought Award from the American Political Science Association and was a finalist for the 2019 Frederick Jackson Turner Award from the Organization of American Historians. He has written extensively on the relationship between history and constitutional originalism, including in two essays that appeared on Process, a blog for American history, published by the Organization of American Historians. He is currently completing a book, under contract with Yale University Press, that presents a comprehensive historical critique of originalism, a preview of which can be found in an article recently published in Law and History Review, Written Constitutionalism, Past and Present. Professor Ganap, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: To start off, could you begin by telling us what originalism is? Why are historians' perspectives important to understanding and assessing originalism as a constitutional theory?
1: Constitutional originalism is a theory of constitutional interpretation. How Americans should interpret the United States Constitution. And basically what originalism claims at its core is that the right way to interpret the U.S. Constitution is by recourse to the original meaning it had at the time of its creation. So in other words, what its meaning was understood to be, not now in the present, but at the time that it was written and ratified. So the reason I think that historians' perspectives are so important to the ongoing, now many decades old, debate over the merits of constitutional originalism is it's hard to find really anywhere In contemporary legal life or civic life, I think a debate that more immediately implicates history and its study, because the claim here among originalists is that modern constitutional questions should not primarily turn on the facts of today, but the facts of the past of what apparently happened sometime often in the very distant past. In the case of the United States Constitution, it was written and ratified in the 18th century. So it's pretty hard to find an area of modern life, I think, that draws more immediately on history and seems to call out for the use of historical methods. If the goal is to figure out what the Constitution originally meant, that seemingly is an exercise that requires doing something like what historians do. So as I see it, historians should be more involved, not less involved in this conversation, which is part of the reason I've ended up, a bit to my surprise, Uh, writing so much about originalism and spending so much time talking to people in the legal academy who are in this debate.
0: What is originalism's relationship to history as a discipline and how has that relationship evolved over time?
1: It's a really important question because the answer is so revealing. So originalism as an ism, as a kind of identifiable theory that people rallied around Developed in inchoate form in the 1960s and 1970s before receiving the label originalism itself in the 1980s, largely in response to what were perceived as the judicial excesses of the Supreme Court under Chief Justices Earl Warren and and Ward Berger in the post-war period. And initially when originalism came on the scene, and it was suggesting that judges needed to appeal to something outside of themselves, not their sort of subjective values or what they thought was necessary to establish justice in the present, they called for this return to original intent, as they put it. What did the framers or the founders or the so-called founding fathers originally intend in laying down the constitution that is still fundamental law? So this early version of originalism, what I call originalism 1.0, at least in theory, required a pretty thick view of history. It turned on questions like, what did the framers at the Constitutional Convention intend by giving the treaty making power to both the president and the Senate? Or when they devised the electoral college, What did they have in mind? What did they expect to follow from it? So questions of intent and and broad understanding seemed pretty relevant to what originalism was trying to do. So at least in this early phase in the late 20th century, originalism and history seemed to kind of move together, that originalists were trying to do something like history. Over time, though, originalism dramatically changed. And with that, its relationship to history dramatically changed. Originalism in this early form, Originalism 1.0, struggled with a variety of critiques. There were many, but to kind of keep things succinct, two in particular sort of stood out. One was, how do you deal with the problem of multiplicity of intent? The Constitution was not written by one person. It didn't have one author. It had lots of different people who were responsible for it. There were 55 delegates at the Constitutional Convention, only some of whom agreed to the Constitution. There were many, many more people who formally ratified it in the different state conventions. And then there were all the other people that made up the American political community. Of course, a circumscribed political community by our standards today, but also a relatively large one nonetheless. So if you're trying to discover original intent, whose intent do you favor? James Madison thinks one thing, Alexander Hamilton thinks another, which is the original intent. Originalists struggled to think through how to make sense of this problem. And then in addition, a lot of people suggested that the original intent was not to interpret the constitution as originalists suggested. In other words, if the original intent was to not be an originalist, then to be a good originalist by following the original intent, meant not being an originalist. Now, some people disputed that claim, but there was a certain power to it. So what originalists ended up doing is they transitioned, broadly speaking, from trying to recover original intent to trying to recover original meaning or what they often called original public meaning. So the idea here being who cares what was intended? Who cared what people expected to follow from ratifying the constitution? The constitutions a written document made up of various words and phrases. What did those words and phrases mean to the average person linguistically, objectively, at the time it was ratified? And this became known as original public meaning originalism. And it was especially championed by probably the most famous originalist of all time, Justice Antonin Scalia, who served on the Supreme Court for many decades. And what this meant was, rather than, as I suggested in its early phase, originalism and history kind of marched in lockstep, at least in theory, originalists were trying to do something like history. Now they were doing something that went from a thick conception of history to a much lighter, thinner version of history. They didn't care so much what people were doing at the constitutional convention, what they might have intended, what the broader goals of the original constitution were, why there was a constitutional convention, what people expected to follow from it. It was now this much narrower activity focused on what did these words mean to a hypothetical reader at the time. So originalism became much less interested in the kind of broader context that historians consider so essential to historical study, and as a result, originalism went from trying to kind of do history to suggesting that it was doing something completely different from history that was actually quite unrelated to what historians tend to focus on. So it went from kind of a a joint project, if you will, to a project that claimed to be quite distinct from the historical discipline.
0: Great, that leads me really well into my next question, which is, How does originalism 2.0, a term that you use in your post on Process Blog, relate to historical methodology? And what does this mean for not only legal historians, but all historians?
1: Yeah, so I mentioned that that first phase of originalism, I call it originalism 1.0. So the version of originalism, usually called public meaning originalism, that I mentioned has become dominant for the last few decades. I call that originalism 2.0. So Its relationship to historical methodology is interesting because it doesn't claim to try to recover the past as historians would. It instead claims that the original public meaning of of the Constitution doesn't really require historical methodology at all. If you're interested in understanding what the founders thought the Constitution would mean for the institution of slavery, say? A very important historical question. You would need to know a whole lot of things about 18th century political and social attitudes and thinking and debates and the broader economy of the United States and certain understandings of race and racial supremacy. But originalists who operate under Originalism 2.0 say that's usually not the kinds of questions that modern lawyers are interested in they're interested in what do these particular phrases that are in the constitution actually mean the vesting clause of article 2 for instance gives the quote executive power to the president of the united states the meaning of which helps determine exactly what authority the president has to what extent congress can or cannot curtail the executive branch in certain ways it does or does not say something about the president's authority to manage foreign affairs, so on and so forth. So originalists would say, rather than having to get caught up in broader 18th century context, let's just focus on what the phrase executive power meant. Let's look at how people used it linguistically, how it shows up in different writings. And from that, we can understand what its original meaning is. So we see a tension here, in other words, that historians saying, well, if you really wanna understand what the constitution was saying in the 18th century, you need to situate it in this very broad context. You need to kind of recreate life at the time, how people thought at the time, how they made sense of things at the time. The originalists have been suggesting that they can kind of bypass most of that by just focusing on the words. So as a result, historical methodology falls out of this endeavor. And to me, to answer your second question, what does this mean, not only for legal historians, but all historians, I think this should be something that gets all of our attention. Because this is a claim on the authority of the past. It's rooted in the authority of the past. It's saying modern legal questions will be determined by things we can know about the past, but that knowledge of the past apparently can be derived without Doing any of the things that we legal historians, or more broadly, historians of all stripes, consider essential to the creation of historical knowledge. That seems to me like an important debate that historians should care about and be invested in. Whether, like me, people study the original Constitution or not, whether or not people do legal history or not. Everybody is invested in the importance of. Historical methods and presumably committed to why they are such a valuable way of generating knowledge. So, if other people are drawing on the past and either explicitly or implicitly claiming that those methods are not needed, that's worth thinking about. I mean, are there certain things that we would want to know about the past that don't require the kind of thicker contextualization that historians? consider so important. And if not, then if we're not going to make the case for why that kind of thicker contextualization is important, I'm not sure who else will. So again, that helps explain how I sort of got pulled into this debate, that the kinds of things identify as important, it seems to me require just the kind of contextualization that anything else would. If you really want to know what the words of the Constitution meant at the time, You have to first understand how people thought at the time, how they understood how different kinds of constitutional concepts worked, you know, to just choose some examples. I I don't think you can really get very far understanding what the First Amendment say or the Second Amendment were really communicating in the 18th century, unless you already know quite a bit about how people thought generally about rights and liberty and their relationship to state power. Because I think what ends up happening instead is if you just focus on the words and their so-called definition, the kind of semantic, narrow linguistic content, you end up inadvertently smuggling a lot of anachronistic assumptions into your interpretation. You take for granted that people in the 18th century perhaps speak English that seems recognizable, more or less think about these things the way we do, right? And It seems to me that's precisely what historians, especially legal historians, have been so invested in for so many decades. I mean, this is what most legal historians, sort of the broad consensus that they operate under, that there's an enormous amount of change that you identify if you study how legal forms and argumentation have developed over time. And what makes that change so important is it's usually hidden at the surface level. It it appears as though things are more or less continuous. There's a lot of continuity in the legal system, but if you dig deeper, you recognize that there's actually a lot of rupture and change and, and you actually need to understand in a deeper level what was going on in the past to understand both what people were earlier talking about and how that evolved into legal forms and forms of legal argumentation that are more familiar. And I think all of those lessons that legal historians have have emphasized over several decades are really pertinent to the study of the Constitution, because there's this surface level familiarity, right? I mean, those of us who are raised in the United States, you're sort of raised in a certain civics culture about the Constitution sets up a system of checks and balances, and it all seems very familiar. But if you go back to the 18th century, you find very different ways of thinking about the Constitution. And If you just focus on the words and their definitions, you can miss a lot of that. And so I think historians of all stripes who are interested in this this sort of emphasis of historical difference and the methods needed to bridge those differences should care about this debate, which is why I think, to you know, to answer your second question, why it means something not just for people who study the Constitution like me, but I think for all legal historians and all historians generally.
0: Why do you think legal scholars should consider what the
1: constitution
0: was historically? What did a written constitution mean conceptually to people in the 18th century?
1: Yeah, so this question and the way you phrased it, which very much captures things that are at the heart of my work, you know, considering what the constitution was historically, I think helps address precisely the problem I was beginning to speak to in the previous answer, that originalists and a lot of modern legal discourse is usually pretty narrowly oriented around specific words or phrases in the constitution. And what I started to realize and what sort of motivated some of my historical research was usually people seem to take for granted what the constitution itself was. So there was a focus on, well, What did the First Amendment mean in the 18th century? How does it potentially mean something different today in the 21st century? But the same kinds of questions were rarely asked of the Constitution itself. It was almost as though the Constitution is just the Constitution. You didn't need to sort of spend too much time thinking about what it was because it had a sort of self-evident quality to it. It's that thing that you have in your pocket, if you have a pocket constitution, or you can go to the National Archives and look at it. That's what the constitution is. Not much more needs to be said about it. But I think legal scholars should really focus far more than they have on what it was that the constitution was when it was originally conceived, because it was not self-evident in any of those ways. A whole set of questions that were not specifically focused on the Constitution's meaning or what particular words or phrases communicated were not easily answered when the Constitution first emerged. And all of those questions demand further attention. So just as some examples, it was the Constitution born complete or incomplete. In other words, Did people sort of understand it to be a pretty comprehensive legal code, or was it assumed that it was something more along the lines of the bones of a building that needed to be fleshed out and added to over time? And if that was so, how would it be added to? In what ways? And who would be doing the adding? So those are sort of big questions about the Constitution's character. Another one pertains to its relationship to ordinary law. So we often think of the Constitution as a legal document, but what exactly does that mean? Was the Constitution alike in kind to other sorts of legal instruments that people were familiar with in the 18th century or are still familiar with today? Was it like a statute? Was it like a contract? Maybe a treaty? Maybe a fiduciary trust? You can think of all sorts of instruments. Was it like any of these or was it distinct in kind? The answer to that question also was not straightforward at the time. This also went to the question of how it would be interpreted. Did the constitution broadly speaking come with a user's manual? Um, did it have sort of an invisible unwritten article that explained how it was supposed to be interpreted? And if not, if it didn't come with a user's manual, where was that going to come from? And who could sort of write those rules of interpretation and usage? Were those supposed to be devised over time in practice? Were those supposed to change with each generation as people understood how they were supposed to use it? And then to your question of specifically a written constitution, this, I think, also gets to the very core of this question of we shouldn't just take for granted that the constitution is what it is. Usually when people suggest that the constitution's nature is self-evident, they point to the fact that it's written. You know, again, they might pull out their pocket constitution and wave it around and say, here's the constitution. I'm holding it in my hand. It is written. Obviously, the constitution is written in a certain way. But to me, what these sort of matter of fact statements usually miss is that written constitutionalism doesn't just come in one shape and one size. There are different ways of thinking about what a written constitution might be and what it might entail. And it seems to me that when you go back to the 18th century and you try to understand what people at the American founding were doing when they wrote constitutions following the independence of the United States, first at the state level and then later at the national level, that they didn't think about written constitutionalism the way that people today often do, and especially originals. By here, I mean that they usually thought that written constitutions, writing certain things out that would explain what the government would look like, how it would work, what rights and powers it would have, what rights citizens would have that the government could not interfere with, was not usually regarded as comprehensive and exclusive in the sense of the writing down of constitutional content did not establish the entirety of what consisted of fundamental law at the time. There was a broad understanding that a lot of fundamental law, a lot of the things that defined our fundamental rights, existed before you wrote down anything. And you didn't need to codify those things in written text for them to have authority. So, The Constitution, in the broadest sense, was the things that you had written down, plus all of these other things that pre-existed as a matter of fundamental law. And this is a very different way of thinking about written constitutionalism. This sees a kind of harmony between the writing of constitutional content and unwritten constitutional content as opposed to that other way of thinking about written constitutionalism that I suggest is far more dominant today, which assumes that when you write a constitution down, the four corners of the text kind of serve as a sharp boundary. What's in the constitution is inside those four corners or can be derived somehow from that text. And anything that's outside of it is just not really part of the constitution. And I don't think people in the 18th century, at least at first saw things in those terms. So part of understanding the complexity of what the Constitution originally was also means grasping, I think, this different way or different ways of thinking about written constitutionalism that are less familiar to us.
0: How do originalists justify their positivist interpretation of the Constitution?
1: I suppose the easiest answer, which is something I allude to, in the Law & History Review article that you referenced in introducing me is that they don't really justify it. (laughs) They more or less take it for granted rather than sketch it out. So you use the word positivist, and that's really important because that gets to the heart of what I think a lot of originalists are up to and what they assume to be the right way to approach the Constitution. So there's lots of different ways of understanding law. And there's big debates in legal theory about how we should understand the nature of law, which I don't want to get too bogged down in. But generally speaking, positivist interpretations of law assume that law is basically seen as what the sovereign or some authorized lawmaking body has posited the law to be. So a legislature writes a statute, Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, but it's the law because it has been positively enacted by a body that has the legal authority to do that. Those who tend to say that law is not simply positivist in character, but also has non-positive features and authority tend to point to other kinds of things like morality or justice and suggest that even if law is made by all the requisite requirements of a legal system, it still might not have the binding authority of law because it's deeply immoral or at odds with natural law or something like that. So there's all these debates about how we understand the nature of law. And one thing that strikes me as pretty interesting is that most originalists, not all originalists, but the vast majority of them, more or less presuppose a kind of positivist approach to the Constitution. This sort of undergirds their notion of the Constitution as written, as I just specified, that to understand what the Constitution requires, to understand its meaning, to understand its content, is to understand the meaning of its words. This basically says that the content the Constitution has is whatever the framers expressly wrote in there, or whatever we can reasonably derive from what they wrote in there that everything's kind of tethered to the positive enactment of constitutional content. You know, you have a blank page, you have no constitutional content, you write some things down, you now have constitutional content, you write some more things down, eventually all the things you've written down is kind of the sum of what the constitution permits. And as I see it, if you go back to the 18th century, you don't find that kind of straightforward positivist approach to understanding constitutionalism. You find instead this mixture of thinking of law and constitutionalism and especially fundamental law, which is really what constitutions operate in conjunction with as being a mix of both positivist and non-positivist elements. And part of the reason why was because people in the 18th century, unlike today, you know, on the other side of our, our modernist revolutions, tended to think that a lot of law was not made but found, that certain general legal principles that had sort of fundamental authority were just out there, like the principles of mathematics awaiting discovery. And it was the job of legal thinkers and judges through the use of reason and by sort of studying the history of the communities of which they were a part to try to identify those and understand those. But what this then meant was the constitution as they saw it and constitutions generally were not simply the things that were positively enacted, but it was those things plus these sort of pre-existing general legal principles that didn't need to be positively enacted to have authority. Certain things like passing ex post facto laws automatically Stood in violation of certain general legal principles. So you could write into the Constitution, as was eventually written into the federal Constitution, that those kinds of laws are prohibited. But there was an understanding that this was not necessary to establishing the legal authority of this principle, that you were effectively using the written text to reinforce what was already true. And this had long been true in British constitutional thinking, which is the culture in which Americans in the revolutionary era developed. Think of Magna Carta. Nobody thought that Magna Carta, the text itself, created any of the rights that were claimed to be protected in it. They were merely a reminder. They were declaratory of it. They were a reinforcement so people wouldn't forget, but they existed prior to and independent of Magna Carta. So there's a very different way of thinking about how you create legal authority and legal content and originalists tend to be positivist in character, but people in the founding era, if we're interested in the kind of constitution they were setting up, I try to argue how they understood law in this more complex way that drew on both positivist and non-positivist elements. And if the point is to recover the meaning of what they laid down, it seems to me hard to avoid the fact that that was how they were thinking because how they thought about law certainly affected what they thought they were creating.
0: How might your work on covering the social and intellectual context that framed founding era cases and the constitution affect judicial interpretations today?
1: There are at least two ways to answer this question, I think. The first, which is perhaps more straightforward, is simply In having a deeper, richer, broader understanding of the social and intellectual context of early founding era constitutional interpretation will help us better answer some of the questions that seem to increasingly be coming before the court today, not least because for the first time in its history, the Supreme Court boasts an originalist majority. So increasingly, legal questions are turning on. What was the original meaning of this or that or this other thing? And my hope is that focusing on some of these broader social and intellectual contexts that help problematize some of these sort of just so accounts of what the Constitution meant and required will generate different, richer, fuller answers to some of those questions and will often lead to surprising places. More broadly, though, and I think this is something that all legal historians think about, our interest is not merely in finding the right answers to the questions that seem to agitate modern legal disputes. I think for a lot of us, what we're trying to emphasize in recovering the broader context of an original legal environment is not just to arrive at a different conclusion than people might otherwise be inclined to reach, but to show the extent to which those who are relying on history and modern legal disputes are actually making a lot of optional choices in their use of their history, and their discussion of the history, in the things they draw from the history that go unjustified. So the value of offering a thicker, richer, fuller historical account is in fact to expose that To show that the people who are trying to use history to get around the problem of judges being activists or making law or treating the Constitution as living, which in the eyes of originalists is just a way of judges substituting their personal values for what the Constitution actually requires. If you can show through the history that a lot of things that modern legal thinkers are taking for granted are in fact contingent, optional, and based on choices that we need not make. In other words, if you can show when they interpret the original constitution, they're relying on a lot of unstated assumptions that don't actually jive with the history. What you've ended up showing, I think, to a certain extent, is that they're no less guilty of making the kinds of choices that they're accusing their opponents of making. And what that then means is it sort of neutralizes the use of history in a certain way. And in modern legal dispute anyway, it it allows a different kind of conversation to take shape that is focused more on the merits of the case and the choices that people should be making if they invariably have to be making these choices, rather than continuing to rely on this belief that they can somehow use history to escape these choices, to kind of take something that might be an inherently normative activity, legal decision-making, and reduce it to a kind of objective fact-finding mission, which is what the use of history is often presented as, right? Well, I will return to the history because if I find out the original meaning, then I'm finding out something that is sort of objectively, factually the case. And then I, the judge, am not relying on my own opinion. But if you can expose that as being something very unlike what it claims to be, that can help refocus the conversation. So it's a way of using history in that regard, I think, to deflate some of the ways in which people inappropriately use history for the authority of certain claims.
0: All right. Well, Professor Ganap, it's been really wonderful having you on the show today. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.